Hello everyone and welcome to The Apex. This week we're joined by racing driver, coach, writer, presenter, consultant and all-round motoring renaissance man Sam Hancock. After rising through the ranks of karting and single-seaters early in his career, in 2001 Sam switched to competing in endurance sports cars with Kramer Racing. A career at the top of sports car racing followed, with a European Le Mans Series LMP2 Championship, a stint as official factory driver for Aston Martin Racing, a class win in the World Endurance Championship, and seven outings at Le Mans in prototype and GT classes, all coming Sam's way. Having tasted success at the heights of sports car racing and worked with some of the world's most prestigious teams, he's also a full member of that most elite of gatherings, the British Racing Drivers Club. Sam, lovely to have you with us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for the intro as well, although I have to say you made me feel like I'm a jack of all trades and a master <laughs> of none. So I've, I've detailed some of your achievements in my introduction and we can get stuck into racing in a moment. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, uh, the Sam Hancock of today is much more than a racing driver. You coach drivers, you commentate for Eurosport, you do a lot of media and presenting work for things like Petrolicious and collecting cars. What prompted your transition into such a varied spectrum of car related activity? <laughs> I need to make some money, <laughs> quite simply, Be, being a, a, you know, or, or trying to be a professional racing driver and, and get paid, get, you know, getting paid consistently to do that job when you haven't made it to Formula One and, and, and similar heights is, is, uh, it's, it's possible and there's plenty of roles and niche opportunities out there for pro drivers um, that don't get to that top step of the single seater ladder but you have to really hustle and you have to be versatile and you have to be open-minded to different ways of um, going about should I say different ways of defining that phrase professional racing driver and that's a process that you know I started an awful long time ago now when I was in, in sports car racing and just starting to paid here and there or at least have my expenses paid you know in my early 20s um, going from having to scrabble around to raise loads of sponsorship money and and kind of really wearing a marketeer's hat during the weekdays before you know crash helmet at the weekends to suddenly sort of reaching that tipping point and starting to not have to take money to the teams to secure my seat but actually starting to earn a few quid but in no way a consistent way um, you've got to be creative and one of the ways that many drivers in that scenario earn a living is to do instructing driver coaching and for some that means working at any of the various racing schools during the weeks and hopefully racing at the weekends if they've got some kind of a deal some kind of a seat or alternatively it's working as a one-to-one -one private driver coach and very often the client demographic, if that's the right word, is, is a sort of amateur racer, gentleman drivers, sometimes we call them. And, mm -hmm. um, and you can build up long-term working relationships with those guys. And, and I would say that everything I do now, everything that was on your sort of bullet point list a moment ago, starts with that driver coaching role, which itself is an extension of, you know, the sort of the, the pro driving kind of motor racing element of it mm -hmm. well, that's very interesting so speaking of the racing itself so you've got a vast amount of experience with racing cars of all types and vintages i've seen footage of you slinging a lister nobly around goodwood battling in a 246s dino and of course competing in cutting edge racing cars not least in your seven outings at le mans 
So how does driving a vintage car on the limit differ from a modern racing car? And do you have a preference for the new stuff or, or the old stuff? Well, great question. Um, they differ enormously. And in fact, the stark contrast was you know, brought right home the other day when I was doing a magazine track test for Motorsport magazine who were doing a feature on the new endurance racing legends and masters endurance legends two series in the historic racing circles that cater for very young sports and gt cars with le mans history mm. and we were testing a bunch of cars you know that are reasonably young so you know from roughly the year 2003 to roughly 2016 i think was was the age range and it was just quite interesting because you know, to, to be in such contemporary machinery when I spend most of my time these days in historic cars was not only a lovely sort of step back in time to what I used to know and love, you know, circa eight or eight or ten years ago, um, but also it was just a real reminder of the vast differences between the cars. And I would say, you know, to answer your question, how do they differ driving them on the limit? Um, well, the job of, you know, let's say that this particular Lola LMP1 with a Judd V8 engine that I was testing the other day, that's kind of a 2010 era car, very similar in fact to the Aston Martin LMP1 golf livery coupe that I raced 10 years ago at Le Mans. That's a sort of a, a, a I don't know, kind of a, a bravery quest, if you know what I mean. It's it, it sort of, you know, how, how, how late dare you break how much speed dare you kind of roll into the into the apex how early are you willing to commit to the throttle to keep that corner speed up and activate the aerodynamic downforce which will give you the grip that you hope will be there on the exit of the corner that you need to rely on for the exit of the corner and and a lot of that is gut feel and experience making lots of very quick little decisions subconsciously as as you feel the car underneath you but it's mm. it's it's a case of doing that with precision so it becomes a bit of a point to point exercise the perfect breaking point you know to the nearest meter the perfect turn in point connecting with a perfect apex all the while you know getting the right rolling speed and um and if you can string that process together in a contemporary you know, high downforce, high power, slick tired race car, then you're going to put together a very quick lap time. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't demand is, is what I would say, it does demand a sense of feel, but it's, a, it's not what I define as a sense of feel from a car. So when I talk about a driver needing feel, I tend to think of, a, of an older car kind of wafting in a four-wheel drift from one mm -hmm. side of the circuit to the other. and Something like the Lotus 49, something like that, the kind of Graham Hill style car. Yeah, it could, could be, but it applies to, you know, to cars of even lesser grip and, and older mm -hmm. age than that. And frankly, even younger stuff too. Um, you know, it could be a, a reasonably modern little Formula Ford or something on skinny tires. But, but the point mm -hmm. is something that slides and drifts Whereas in a lot of contemporary machinery, particularly prototypes and single-seaters of a very high level, they have massive amounts of grip and they are absolutely 
bolted to the road until mm-hmm. the moment that they're not. And that moment arrives if you carry a bit too much speed or you load the car up in slightly the wrong way and you don't tend to get much of a slide. You definitely don't get a drift really. You get a snap and it's mm. very hard to rescue that, which is, which I think if you look at modern Formula One, that's why you see, you know, the cars look pretty vicious, pretty hard to keep control of. And you often yeah. see drivers just lose the back end out of nowhere. It's like they're on rails one moment and then suddenly they're backwards into the wall split yeah. second later with with no notice you have Whereas to feel the, sorry perhaps for sebastian vettel or that kind yeah of. i mean I, I i do because you know you can see obviously you know he's having more problems than others he's certainly having more problems than he used to have so i don't quite know what's going on but you can see how hard the cars are to hang on to and how unpredictable they are so mm-hmm. that is indicative indicative of of a modern race car in general i would say um current f1 perhaps represents an extreme of this character set that i'm talking about mm-hmm. but by stark contrast the older historic race cars that have these lovely long drifts and slides you know that's a very different sensation and driving one of those on the limits demands a different kind of feel mm-hmm. um i would say less you know less courage you're not breaking crazy late and you're not you know, rattling through the apexes on crazy speed with sheer blind hope that the downforce is going to keep you on the track through the exit. It's a, it's a constant sense of feel and you need to be much more dialed into the nuances of the car, much more dialed into the subtleties as it kind of communicates mm. its, 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 its needs and its movement through the seat mm-hmm. and through the steering. And, and certainly the older cars are... They're moving all the time, even on the straights, even when you upshift in it, let's say a um, 1960s lightweight E-type race car or something. When, when you depress the clutch to select a higher gear flat out on the, you know, on the, on the back straight at Goodwood, for example, you know, the car gives a little wobble as you get that momentary weight transfer mm. forward and aft. And, and if you're not used to that, if you're coming from modern racing exclusively as i did about 10 years ago i came from a history only of modern single seaters and sports cars and it's weird it's scary it feels like honestly like the car hasn't been bolted together properly perhaps somebody forgot to tighten up a wheel nut or something and it's 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 moving on the rim that that's how alien these historic cars can feel if that's a very all you know is contemporary that's a very interesting way of putting it i think I think there are also many car enthusiasts out there who quite fancy the idea of being in, involved in racing modern or vintage, but let's face it, especially given what you've just described, we aren't all Ayrton Senna. Um, aside from obviously brilliantly fast drivers and deep pockets, what in your experience, uh, including with Jota Sport, I suppose, separates a great racing team from, from the merely good? Um, well, in the in the modern racing world, you know, money is, is is probably the same in historics as well to a certain extent but certainly in modern racing you know a team needs to be well funded and it and it, it takes a very special group of people to perform even if they are talented individuals in their respective roles as technicians or engineers or team managers or whatever it is it takes a very rare set of people to perform among their competitors if they haven't got suitable budget because frankly you just 
to 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 get race wins under your belt at international level the level of preparation has to be second to none and and reliability comes before performance you know the old adage of you know to, to come first first you've got to get to the flag well it's true and to prepare let's say you're talking endurance racing let's say you're talking about Le Mans 24 hours to prepare a car to get to the end of Le Mans the rigors of 24 hours of intense racing you can't leave anything to chance so you simply need a tremendous amount of budget to have let's say a very restricted lifing of components so you're replacing things for new or, or rebuilt on a very you know very regular basis probably being a bit too cautious with the kilometers per component that you're willing to put on them um, and you've got to have a lot of people you know you don't you want to have specialists in every area of the car's preparation uh, you've only got to look at the bigger teams at Le Mans and see how they bring in an army of new freshly rested um, mechanics and engineers at certain shifts during the race so that people don't get too tired you know and that is all part of the luxury of having budget so that's the first thing but there are other ways of doing it and you mentioned Joe's of sport and, and it's a good good choice I was with them for about five years um, fronted by Sam Hicknett it's his his team he founded it and and it leadership comes from the top and he's brilliant he's absolutely uh, one of these outstanding team owner team manager guys and i think that even when they didn't have very much money uh, funny enough when i first drove for them in the le mans series i did a one-off round in their lmp1 zytec many moons ago and it was a real small team with funny enough a lot of volunteer workers weekend warriors as they're sort of not very affectionately <laughs> referred to, um, but they were outstanding, you know, and, and that day at Istanbul Park, or whatever the circuit's called in Turkey, you know, we felt like the David's taking on Goliaths of, of Audi and so on. And, and we did, by the way, I, you know, I think we were leading at one point and I certainly remember handing the car over, I think in second place overall. And there was an Audi on the circuit. There was a Pescarola on the circuit, some serious competition. And yet we were a bunch of guys from France in Kent, maybe less than 10 people on the team that weekend, half of them volunteers for the weekend, as I said, but they delivered because Sam is very good at hiring great people and empowering them to do the job and giving them the tools that they need to do their job properly so anything that the guys asked for so long as it contributed to the car's performance was granted whereas anything that felt superfluous whether it was i don't know you know a fancy pit awning or whatever it might be something that just didn't directly impact the car's performance or reliability that's where you know, it tended to be withheld. Um, so no, that, that was a good example. That's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I was going to move on to talk a bit about ownership, which is something close to our hearts here at the Apex. And I think you've mentioned elsewhere that when it comes to driver coaching, your role as an advisor for buying classic cars often comes out of your experience in coaching the relevant collector on the track. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how various driving styles and levels of skill influence your recommendations when people ask you for them? Sure, absolutely. Um, so through my kind of 
I suppose my sort of primary role as a as a as a driver coach, and working with you know, a small number of of amateur racers who are taking their racing very seriously, but it's not their day job. They're doing it for fun. They've got businesses to run, you know, families to spend time with, and so on. What they want is to not waste their time. So that means the car has to be reliable. It has to be enjoyable, and it needs to be prepared by people that know what they're doing so inevitably as, as the relationship between coach and sort of student if that's the right word builds um you end up talking a lot about you know what might suit that particular person in terms of their driving ability the level that they're at but also where they want to get to what events do they want to do and i've spent many a scary day in the passenger seat of high-powered race cars that have been sold to let's say unsuspecting buyers who are frankly just too early in their amateur historic racing career to be at the wheel of something as capable and as fast as as some of these cars are i remember one example in particular when somebody was in year one of uh, of their sort of you know racing experiences and somebody had convinced them to buy a replica GT40 and go historic racing. Well, that was a oh, wow. bad decision. That was bad advice. And frankly, shame on whoever sold that car into them because it's also a dangerous bit of advice. And it did end in tears with, with a bit of a crash, you know, and, and, and we needed just to rein that right back in. And I always encourage people that are setting out on their, on their racing journey to spend time in more humble machinery for example, an under two liter historic touring car, a Cortina, or a, you know, a, a BMW 1800 teaser, or an Alpha GTA, or you know, GT Junior, or something like that. Spend time in something that drifts and moves and slides constantly, but not at a crazy high rolling speed. Mm-hmm. You want to be feeling the tire slide across the surface even in the slowest corners, even at sort of 60, 70 miles an hour. And then when you're trundling through a hundred mile an hour, you know, Magwick at Goodwood and the car starts to move underneath you, as it definitely will, it's going to happen very progressively with loads of warning. It's going to be really manageable. And I've spent plenty of time on track with total beginners on day one of their you know, track experience in cars like that. And they love it because even by the end of the first day, they can catch those kind of slides and drifts and enjoy chucking the car around. And it all feels very fun and very safe. Whereas if you try doing that with a beginner in something like a GT40 or anything equivalently, you know, inappropriate, what happens is the, the speed at which the traction breaks is too high. And if you don't have the experience to sense that moment coming, when it does arrive, it all happens a bit too quickly and it's ever so easy to get it wrong and end up off off the road. So my advice or my role as an advisor starts with, you know, sort of driver coach's hat on and a sort of, you know, a, a gentle inquisition, as it were, into, okay, look, based on your experience or based on the kind of driving level that I'm experiencing from the passenger seat sat next to you, 
and based on our conversations of the kind of cars that excite you, the kind of events that excite you, the kind of things you hope to be doing eventually, you know, maybe try this car, maybe try that car. You know, you, perhaps you're very early in your, in your, your racing days and you, but you love, your dream is to race at the Revival. Well, good news because whilst a lot of the grids at the Revival contain powerful cars that I wouldn't recommend, one of the best grids is, you know, the St. Mary's Trophy, for example, for, mm -hmm. for 1960s touring cars. Well, A, you know, compared to other areas of historic racing, the cars are, are more affordable. B, they're, they're absolutely outstanding coaching cars, so we can spend loads of time on the track together, and I can sit in the passenger seat safely and with comfort, and we're in a, a big square three-box tin can, and there's a full roll cage, and there's plenty of space for the two of us to sit side by side on a track day when we're doing some driver coaching. And if you buy the right car, it would be attractive to the sort of selection committee at Goodwood uh, who might be interested in having it on the grid. So mm. they're the kind of conversations that we might have. And then separately at the other end of the scale, there are plenty of clients I work with who fell in love with racing you know, through the 80s or 90s, for example, and just obsessed with Group C. And, you know, I've got one German client in particular who loves Silver Arrows, Mercedes, the C9, the C11, and so yeah. on. Uh, another one who loves, you know, Rothmans, Porsche 962s, another one who loves historic Formula One of the 70s, because that's what they, that's the, the, the era that they grew up watching. That's when they really fell in love with motorsport and um, that's when they really kind of set their hearts on the cars that to them were the dream aspiration and what's nice these days is all of these cars are eligible for something you can actually go and buy these things you can race them and you can have a great great time so you need to create a ladder system you need to have a conversation that says okay look I hear you, um, I love your taste, I love your ambition, I don't recommend it for you today, we need, we need to do some work on your driving, you know, I want you to get there, and by the way, those cars are not as scary as you might think, they are actually quite accessible, um, in some cases they've got the, the budget that they need, and so it's, it's a case mm -hmm. of, okay, look, this year, why don't you think about buying this and racing in that? And let's work on, let's, let's get something a little slower, but something that shares the characteristics of that Sauber C9 that you've dreamt of racing and owning one day. Let's get mm. something that's, you know, less powerful, but still runs on slicks. Let's get something that's got a little bit of downforce, but not a lot. And just get used to that feeling over the next six or 12 months. And, and so just coming off use of it this, as a springboard. And so just coming off of this, how, how mechanically minded does an amateur driver like that have to be to get the most out of their car, especially when it comes to vintage racing? Is spannering away an important part of the enjoyment or can you, can you go without? Um, <laughs> most, most, and I should probably include myself in this, don't know one end of a spanner from the other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to be mean. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's, it's not really a requirement. It's like some people do span of their own cars and they'll, they'll prepare them at home in the garage and they'll trailer them to the circuit and they'll, you'll see they'll sort of work terribly hard during the weekend doing all the necessary 
prep and maintenance between the, the various sessions. And I tip my hat to those guys because race weekends are hard enough um, and, and focusing on the driving sometimes can be hard enough. So when you've, you've got a spanner a car, particularly if you're doing it on your own, you probably are on your own. You, you might have a mate there mm. to help, but, but that's a big job. And, um, but what, what I would say is it's not necessary. 99%, I would say, of historic, of the main part of the historic racing is, uh, is drivers who own the cars, who race the cars, but who hire some kind of team or preparer to look after them. And mm. so that, that gives them the luxury of just being able to arrive and drive, as it were, on, mm. on the race weekend. That's However... Fair it is important to have some mechanical understanding and knowledge, particularly in historic cars, less so in modern cars, actually, because the drivers are so um, you know, protected from the damage that they can inflict on the car through you know, ill-timed downshifts or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. There's, there's such a limit to the damage you can do as a driver in, the, in a modern car, whereas in a historic car, you've only got to miss a shift uh, or or you know, engage a, a lower gear too soon in the braking zone, and, and you over-rev your car. You can put a rod through the block and cost yourself tens of thousands of pounds in the blink mm. of an eye, let alone mm. you know, lock the rear axle and spin the thing into the nearest wall. So you know, having mechanical sympathy as a driver with regard to your inputs is critical. And to develop mechanical sympathy, you've got to have some mechanical knowledge and understanding of what's going on. How is the car propelling you forward in this moment? How is the car slowing you down in that moment? How do your inputs affect the components at work through that process? And so we spend a lot of time talking about this, not going into nerdy, nerdy detail, not necessarily needing to get on the spanners, but it is key, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and some of the cars that I get involved in priceless museum pieces that have been restored and are then put out onto the racetrack and if you take a an alpha tipo 33 tt12 prototype for example you know that mm-hmm. won the world championship in the mid 1970s yeah you're not you're not going to find many spare blocks no i if wouldn't you put a hole in one <laughs> so, so you really <laughs> need to know what you're doing to, to make sure you look after that engine, that's absolutely critical. And, and I, I certainly prioritize that myself as a driver um, and spend a lot of time working with my clients as a coach to make sure they understand that too. That's a really, that's a really fascinating insight. Um, on a more personal note, what's in your garage at the moment? Do you have a particular classic car that you have a strong attachment to or that came with some good stories? Um, I, do, I, I only have one car, um, which is uh, probably not to everybody's taste, but I love it. And that's a 19, what is it, 1995 Ferrari 456 GT, the not manual bad. gearbox. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I love it. I know many, of peop- many people don't find it interesting at all. Um, I bought it a good few years ago now because I just felt that they were great value. I'd always liked them. I have to admit, when when they were first launched, I didn't get it. To me, as a teenager, Ferrari was all about bright red, fast racing cars, sports cars, and so on. And I didn't really understand this this sort of supposed flagship car that was launched in, I think it was in silver or something, and looked really subtle and didn't have loads of big bright yellow Ferrari 
shields on its flanks and do you know what i mean i, I didn't really get it but yeah, as i grew, yeah. grew older i started to and um these days i i think it's just coming into its own i really love the lines i think it's very unusual i think it's very pretty i think it's aging very well and the car i bought is in my favorite color dark green i've got an inexplicable obsession with green cars you know of any kind humble or exotic at the moment and i know that sounds really cliched and it's just sort of jumping on the trendy bandwagon of, of green again <laughs> but uh, i'd like green to think brown that i think there. yeah yeah i mean I, I i brown's a good one as well I, I was talking about this the other day i love brown cars and um i i like to think that i was on an early adopter on the green thing i've had the 456 for quite a few years now and I got ridiculed, for example, by my brother, Ollie, when I first brought that home. But, <laughs> but I think some people get it and some people don't. And that's fine. That's, that's the fun of cars. You know, it's, it's each to their own. Taste is subjective. And, and mine belonged, belonged um, sorry, mine belonged to Rowan Atkinson New. So he spec the color scheme, which is, you know, sort of uh, verde and glazier, British, British green over pillar box red leather interior so it's it's pretty out there but i i just love it lovely and um talking more broadly about uh racing today and le mans which i know is very close to your heart in one of your recent interviews you came out quite strongly against criticism of relatively inexperienced gte am racers taking part in events like le mans um why is the gentleman driver so important to modern motorsport and i suppose this ties into the things we've been talking about in this interview Oh, so you've got me worried now. I'm trying to think of an interview I've done where I came out strongly against anything. Um, gosh, I think if 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 I did it, sometimes, sometimes find I, I do the commentary for the modern Le Mans 24 Hours, often for Eurosport, and you often find that when drivers are interviewed, not all, and it's not often, but sometimes they have a whinge about you know, drivers out on track that don't know what they're doing. They're all over the place. They're getting in the way. They're dangerous. They're this, that, or the other. And of course, the drivers they're talking about are the amateurs. The amateurs who are often referred to as gentlemen drivers. I don't love that mm. phrase, to be honest. Um, I think it's a bit dated. But the amateur contingent in sports car racing is the backbone of that entire discipline, that entire strand of our sport. It always has been. In fact, the amateurs came first. The sport was in existence a long time before people turned pro. So Absolutely, yeah. To, to kind of slag them off as being an annoyance and getting in the way and causing trouble, I think is just a little bit short-sighted. But at the same time, I totally get it. You know, I've been in those, in, in those you know, sort of situations myself as well when, you know, you're fighting for a position or the lead or whatever it is and you trip up over a, an amateur driver. And all I can say is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and a bit of context, yes, I do think it's critical that amateur drivers arrive at these high-level events suitably prepared, suitably competent, and if they are rushed there by their minders or their teams or whoever, um, that's not good news. It's dangerous for everybody, and it doesn't end well because all that happens is let's say the wealthy guy who's put on a fast track to Le Mans and frankly it's the process is rushed and you know there's plenty of people benefiting along the way from the size of that person's checkbook well 
you know, enjoy it because what will happen is they'll go to Le Mans, they'll be intimidated, maybe overwhelmed. It's all going to go horribly wrong. Maybe they'll have a spin. Maybe they'll have a crash. Maybe they'll collect somebody. Maybe somebody gets hurt. Whatever happens, it doesn't give a good taste or a good feeling to anybody. And normally that person who's capable of writing those checks leaves the scene with their tail between their legs, feeling very unimpressed with the whole thing. Whereas if you actually just take a moment to be patient and you do it properly and you make a plan and, and everybody involved contributes the right amount of preparation and time, then what you can happen is you can turn that whole scenario on its head mm. and you can end up with an amateur driver that is seriously knocking on, you know, sort of knocking on the door of the pace of the pros and able to win the, you know, some of the classes at Le Mans, the, the amateur accessible classes like LMP2 and, and GTE AM. And, and I've done that. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've trained three LMP2 class winners over the years from very early in their career. In fact, one was, you know, had done not a single track day before our first day of coaching started. Well, wow. fast forward four seasons and he's on the grid at Le Mans. Now that doesn't sound like very long. I know it, it, you could say, well, that's rushed four seasons to get on the grid at Le Mans. Yeah, but hang on. We had a plan. We had a structure. We were doing an average of a day a week um, and loads of racing and, and loads of background work as well. So he, you know, and, and then fast forward on a couple of years from that and he was an LMP2 class winner. So it's, it is possible to do it quickly, but only if you have structure, only if you have a plan and only if you take it seriously. That's a really fantastic way of putting it, I think. Um, and moving on to our final questions now, you're, you're engaged with the car world in so many interesting ways. So as we mentioned, racing, presenting, um, brokering, writing, what's your advice for the next generation who might want to follow in your footsteps? Um, well, it depends what angle they're coming at it from and, and what they might like to do. So, you know, when I was growing up, all I wanted to be was formula one world champion like everybody else and then you get a little bit older you know still talking talking you know teens or whatever and you say okay maybe mm -hmm. world champion's a bit ambitious i just <laughs> want to be a formula one driver we've all been and, there yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly i i know how ridiculous it sounds don't get me wrong i'm completely aware of this um and then as i was sort of climbing the single seater ladder i had to have a bit of a chat with myself and, and reevaluate and say look the, the f1 thing is not going to happen but wouldn't it be amazing if I could just earn my living somehow as a racing driver? It doesn't matter what the definition of that ends up being, but I just want to be a professional racing driver. And that's when you start looking at sports car racing. And that's when I spent a lot of time battling to get into that world and it, it paid off. Um, and then as you get older again, you, you start to see that, you know, maybe you need to, to reevaluate, rethink. And it's, it's about just being fluid and open to new ideas, new possibilities. And I'm very lucky. I really am so grateful that I, I sort of gravitated into the world of historic racing over 10 years ago now, for the, you know, even 15 years ago. And, and that was by chance, really. My, my dad is a little bit involved in it. Through him, we've got some great family friends that are involved in it. One or two of them invited me. You know, when I was obsessed with modern racing and trying to get to F1 and racing single seaters and so on, you know, for, for 
you know, the Twyman family who are well established, for example, invited me to race one of the gorgeous little Lotus 11s at Goodwood. And my dad mm. occasionally had me on board and something with him, you know, and frankly, I had very little knowledge or understanding of historics at that time. And with knowledge and understanding comes appreciation and passion and a real love for the scene. But I just hadn't had the exposure to it back then, but I was happy to mm. do it. And that started the whole thing. And I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the, the different driving experiences of the cars. I loved the romance of it. And I was just very lucky that the whole scene was starting this boom that's still ongoing and in large part championed by the big events like Goodwood. But this was before we had Le Mans Classic, before we had mm -hmm. Monaco Historic, before we had the huge traveling circus of prestigious historic races that we have now. Um, but I sensed about 10 years ago, I sensed momentum. I sensed that I could add value to a lot of the owner drivers from a coaching point of view and, you know, help them set up their cars, help them drive their cars better, uh, help liaise with their preparer to make sure, you know, the jobs that needed to be done were done. I even got quite involved with some of the more established preparers with their kind of processes at the racetrack and their sort of approach to set up and to strategy and so on. Cause a lot of it understandably was, was very amateurish. It's just for fun and they bolt the thing together, go racing and hope for the best. But actually the scene was moving on. It was becoming more competitive and a couple of people were taking it more seriously and actually bringing my modern racing experience and that mindset into the historic world seemed a really helpful to a lot of the people I was working with and added a bit of value but I really enjoyed doing it and so there was mm. this nice sort of mutual um, benefit thing that was unfolding and I just decided to embrace it and go with it and I'm so relieved that I did and um, so grateful for all the opportunities since because you know, everything that I do today and all of the racing moments that I cherish, the cars that I, I can't believe I've driven and the experiences I've had and the, the fun we have when we go off on race weekends and the, the social interaction and the friendships and the relationships you build. It's just brilliant. And it's extraordinary to think of it as work. And I know how lucky I am. And I, I truly am grateful for that every single day. So my advice is um, to anyone that fancies doing something similar is grab onto any opportunity you possibly can that in any way even in a distant way relates to this this space you know this sort of racing scene that if that's behind the wheel or something good for you but if it's sweeping the floors and making the teas at a race preparer or restoration workshop or whatever it is do that too if it's working on a classic car magazine if it's you know my first visit to Le Mans wasn't as a driver. My first visit to Le Mans was as a runner for one of the TV companies. And that, even that job only um, came about when I was already there. And, and I'd, I'd driven down with a tent and no ticket. And I didn't know how I was going to get in. And it's just a sort of chat to people, put yourself out there. Don't be forceful, but do be um, enthusiastic. And, and just, just keep dropping onto people's radar on a semi-regular basis. because one day they'll say oh yeah actually good timing you could help us with this we just need another pair of hands on that and from those starting points 
um, you can you'll build relationships that eventually will generate kind of a, a, a you know a journey a, a route map to where you want to be that's that's brilliant i can hear the passion in your voice when you describe that it makes me want to get up and run to the nearest uh, workshop so <laughs> so just to just to end on a, on a some quick fire uh, questions um so rapid answers uh, just off the top of your head um the first one is of all the cars you've driven which was the most memorable or impressive which was the one that made you perk up or just go wow um that's a really good question there's been so many they impress in different ways but i mentioned earlier on the the alpha tipo 33 tt12 it's not the best handling car in the world but for sheer presence it's got to be right up there it's an extraordinary evocative iconic looking sports prototype racing car and the moment it made me sit up and go wow was the first moment i accelerated out of the pit lane on its first test day its first shakedown day after restoration and it's it's noise it's particular unique sort of soundtrack is so unusual but so evocative and it's you know it's it's a it's a flat 12 boxer engine and it just makes a noise that is it, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck it makes your spine tingle and to experience it from the driver's seat took me back to countless videos and things i'd watched over over the years through my childhood of historic racing or racing documentaries whatever it was and i just felt teleported back to the 70s back into one of those videos and suddenly i could feel and hear this this sound that um i've never experienced in another car that's amazing um so second question favorite racetrack monaco by far um, that's very interesting because most people have said Spa or the Nurburgring that we've had on. It's, I think this is the first Monaco we've we've got. Look, I get I get Spa. I definitely get the Nurburgring. Spa, I think, is a great track as far as sort of proper, you know, sort of traditional style proper racetracks go. It's a good one, um, a very good one. The Nurburgring is this insane roller coaster. I've never raced there, but I've been around around it many times. I love it. I would love to race there. And if I did, who knows, maybe I'd think of it suddenly as my number one. But um, by far the best driving experience I've ever had was a 1976, I think, Fittipaldi Formula One car, DFV engine in the Monaco Historic Grand Prix. And that circuit for me is as good as it gets. There's just something... Oh, just incredible about you know racing a car around there at those kind of speeds it feels brilliantly wrong for a start and um, the speed <laughs> is amplified of course by the proximity of the armco barrier um you've got a real wide variety of corners you obviously got the real tight technical stuff and i know that some people might look at those corners and think oh it's so slow it's boring but it's not even even the tight hairpins they're still challenging because the armco is so close and then suddenly you're into the tunnel or something which in the 1970s f1 car is a really quick right hander and it's not flat this is not a kink on a straight this is a real corner and the car is drifting and it's hard to pick your apex and and then you kind of explode back into the light and a quick sort of piff path through the chicane with the, the sea and the boats on your left it just 
the whole thing is is just utterly unique and when you when you're there and you hear the sound bouncing off the walls and off the buildings and it just takes on a whole higher level um you, you just don't get close to it with the same kind of a car at a tradi- traditional circuit like like Silverstone or even Spa, for example. I mean, that sounds sounds like a dream. And final question. Um, what lesson or lessons has your life's experience in motorsport and the car world taught you? Oh, um, crikey, lots, I'm sure. Uh, I tried very hard to to stay grateful for it it's very easy to get complacent with a lot of this stuff when when you're doing it week in week out and um i really do try hard to 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 stay grateful because it is ridiculous so so i suppose that is one one element um but also just keep pushing and when you because sometimes in career particularly a career like this you know it all, everything we've discussed sounds really appealing and a little bit glamorous maybe or whatever. The reality is, like so many of those things, it's not. Behind the scenes is and has always been loads of hustle, loads of heartache when you lose momentum or, or progress stops or you don't have a seat or you don't have the sponsorship money that you needed in, in your youth or whatever it was. And there's definitely a lack of job security that's for sure and over the years that's why i've branched out into these other areas and and you know each of those is hard at first and then you build a bit of traction and momentum builds and you kind of roll with that so so yeah i suppose the other lesson is just keep pushing because actually if you do something will give in your favor soon enough and and then you're off to the races literally hopefully (laughs) well i think that's a great note to end on sam thank you so very much for speaking to us today and for giving us such a fascinating insight into your world my great pleasure thanks for having me